0: If you um, forgot um, money or you just found out about it, you're like, I would like to contribute to that. It's like a royal bank right down in the corner. So you can just zip there after church, grab some money, come back, checks accepted, it's all good. Okay, we're gonna be uh, looking at Mark chapter three. So if you have your Bibles or an electronic device, you can go to Mark chapter three. I'm gonna be looking at chapter, or verses seven through 12 this morning. But before I do it, the first Sunday of every month, I like to kind of share my own spiritual growth goals. I use Jesus' commandment to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, which Jesus said is the most important thing. I kind of divvy those up into four quadrants, heart, relationships, soul, prayer, worship, deepening of the interior life, mind, biblical understanding, Christian worldview formation, and strength, serving and giving. And so this is my priority this month. Um, I've, there's been a few people that in, in the move out here to BC, I've... Uh, not lost contact with, but probably need to reprioritize taking a chunk of time and and Skyping with and saying, how are you doing? Some friends, colleagues in ministries, family members are going to be doing that. So I'm going to continue to use John Tyson's prayer wheel. I highlighted that in the summit newsletter that goes out on Fridays for a few uh, Fridays, and I found it incredibly powerful and helpful. It's now becoming definitely not a daily habit, but certainly At some point during the week, I'm taking a solid hour to pray through that wheel. And it's just really helping me stay focused and making sure that my prayer life isn't uh, getting derailed into, let's say, supplication, where I'm just asking God for things for me (laughs) and not spending appropriate time in interceding for you or for other people that are known to me or confession or just praise and adoration. Um, I'm going to continue on the Bible reading project. I have some other books in the go, but my main goal is to kind of catch up. Uh, I had a bunch of homework for a covenant course that I was taking, and my Bible readings, uh, at least keeping up with this plan, kind of got uh, pushed back, and so I want to catch up with that and make sure that I'm strong there. And then strength, just planning around some of these church renovations coming up. Uh, my small group, um, well, they don't know this yet, but so don't tell them. But I've kind of volunteered them to do some renovations as it relates to some office space over here. It's going to be really awesome. We're going to literally use our strength, meager though it may be, to uh, just begin to help beautifying and and transforming this space and then getting the things in place this month to, um, again, do some of this painting, beautification, enhancement. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on. And I really encourage you to not look at this and see this and be like, oh, that's neat. My point in doing this is to say this is something I think we all should be doing it has to come from us i'm not going to go around to each person and saying show me your spiritual growth plan but paul says to timothy train yourself to be godly the presumption of the new testament is not you ask jesus into your heart live life the way you see fit and spiritual growth will just automatically happen that is not how maturity or growth happens you want to get stronger in any area you have to have a plan you need to grow it's not simply done in your power you need to rely on god you need to be praying and asking for, be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and His power, but there does demand intentionality. and Intentionality is demanded of you to grow spiritually. And so I really encourage you to take time at early in the month and say, what are some practices, big or small, that I could do in each of these areas to kind of stretch myself? Where do I feel like God is saying, In this relationship, in my time alone with you, in terms of your understanding of the Christian faith, in terms of practically serving and pouring your life out for other people, what do you need to be focusing on this month? I just think that's a massive discipline that anybody who calls themselves a disciple needs to be involved in. Okay, I'm going to read Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came from around Judea, Samaria, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. We've been moving through the Gospel of Mark at a fairly slow pace. And in the last two weeks where we've been in Mark, Jesus has had these confrontations with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, Bible experts. And the confrontation has revolved around two things. Number one, what Jesus was doing. There's certain things that Jesus has been doing early on in his ministry that the religious leaders are very uncomfortable with. He's touching unclean people like lepers. He's, in, he's going to eat and dine, with, which is a sign of social affirmation, with tax collectors and sinners, like really bad people. We're all sinners, but like capital S sinners. And he's... He seems to be playing fast and loose with the law that God instituted. His disciples pick grain on the Sabbath. He's healing people on the Sabbath. doesn't seem that he's really taking God's command to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy seriously. And this has led to this confrontation where the religious leaders, when Jesus says that he's he's the Lord of the Sabbath, they, 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 they now plot to kill him. Now the wheels are in motion where they want to try and get rid of him. They know he has power. They're not refuting his miracles. He can obviously do amazing things. But they're very suspicious as to whether his power comes from God. He has access to a power, but we're going to see later in Mark, they're going to start to say, I wonder if it's like a demonic thing, like an anti-God power. Because there's a lot of Jesus' life that doesn't seem to fit what a godly, righteous leader or prophet of God would look like. Jesus and his message of the kingdom of God is the centerpiece of this confrontation. And everywhere that Jesus goes, through everything that he does, through everything that he teaches, he's overthrowing the status quo. Whether someone is highly religious or irreligious, Jesus is making waves all over. And people are coming from all over because of what he's doing. Notice what Mark says in the text. It's not because of his teachings that people are coming, It's because of what he's doing. And I want to give you a sense and scale of how far people are coming to touch Jesus, have access to Jesus. If you look at a a map of the Middle East in Jesus' time, these are all the areas that, so Galilee region is where Jesus is ministering right now. These are all the areas that Mark 3 says people are being drawn from. In some cases, this is 180 to 190 kilometers away. That is not jumping in the car, you know, driving down for an overnight in Kelowna, and then you're going to pop in and see Jesus at a church on, on Monday morning. This is, this is a huge, huge... I mean, this is Mark's way of saying really far north, Tyre and Sidon, really far south, Idumea, all the regions past the Jordan, which is east, which is the Decapolis, which is a really, really pagan, um, almost thoroughly un-Jewish area, Jesus is drawing religious people who are very interested, very irreligious people who don't care about God or certainly God revealed in the Jewish scriptures, but everyone is interested in healing. They're all looking, for, looking to get something out of Jesus, and he's drawing all these crowds. So the religious establishment is like, we want to kill him. Jesus' popularity is exploding in every other demographic. So... Um, He's not just drawing locals. This is all over. But they're coming to secure a miracle from Jesus. It says in the passage that the people were crowding him. That's not probably the best. It's not the strongest word you could use. In Greek, it means kind of falling over each other and crushing each other. It's like a mad hysteria mob. Once people see Jesus, think, think about times in your life where you've had an illness or an issue or acute or chronic pain, and if you knew there was someone who could guarantee completely, immediately heal it, and then you multiply one person acting out of that motivation across t- tens of thousands of people, you're getting a sense of how chaotic and dangerous this situation is. In verse 11, it says, whenever the impure spirit saw him, referring to Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell people about him. This is what I want to focus on this morning. This is a really, kind of two throwaway, really quick sentences, but they're tremendously important. Mark talks a lot in his gospel about demons or impure spirits or unclean spirits. Different uh, tags are used for each of them. And I'm not going to talk about a full kind of demonology or theology of demons this morning, but. Mark is making it clear very early on in his gospel that Jesus isn't just coming to overthrow the kingdoms of this world, the religious establishment, which has become polluted and poisoned, or let's say an anti-God mindset that exists within the Gentile world. He's also coming to overthrow the rulers and powers and authorities of darkness that exist in this world in the spiritual realm. And from the early chapters of Mark's gospel, a few kind of clear things come into view. Number one, although kind of the details aren't worked out, it's very clear that there are evil, anti-God forces at work in the world beyond just human evil and sinful broken uh, people evil. Mark records a lot of encounters with demon-possessed people. Sometimes like this, he just kind of says there was you know, a casting out of a lot of demons. He doesn't even bother listing them all because there were just so many of them. Um, and it's almost like what we see in the Gospels is as Jesus, the light of the world, steps into our world as fully man and fully God, the powers and principalities of darkness that are in this world also get exposed. You know, a lot of Bible commentators will say there's never been a time in history where there's been the most overt demonic manifestation as when Jesus walked this earth Because when when the light comes, all the corners of darkness that wouldn't normally be exposed get exposed. And number two, the really interesting thing to to notice in all the Gospels, and you have to be careful almost because I had to go back over a lot of demonic encounters and think, is this actually true? Is that they're always portrayed as kind of powerless and pitiful before Jesus. The demons never do battle with Jesus, right? It's not... You know, it's not Harry Potter world. We've got the dueling wizards. Uh Uh-oh, who's going to win? The demons always try and avoid Jesus. They try and bargain with him. We'll see later on in Mark. They're trying to figure out a way. They want him sometimes to just leave them alone. The demons never, in a sense, come at Jesus, and the demons are never presented as equal and opposing forces to this Jesus character. And that's because demons, as we learn about in one of the prophetic books in Isaiah, uh, prophetic uh, prophets of Isaiah, demons are fallen angels. They're angels who were created by God, then chose to rebel and and follow the chief demon, the the great Satan, the great accuser, Lucifer, who wanted to overthrow God, who said, I'm a glorious creation being, but I'm second kind of in command. I want to be the greatest. I want to have a mutiny of heaven. A third of heaven goes with Lucifer and says, yeah, we're with you. We think that's a good plan. They ultimately get cast down and they become demons, fallen angels. But think about what that means. That means these are creatures who have access. See, we only in general have access to a human point of view uh, where we see predominantly our world, material reality. Uh, Fallen angels and demons have access to the whole thing, right? We can only see a certain spectrum of light. They can see the, the, the whole thing. So they know who Jesus is. And Colossians says in him all things were made and through him nothing came into existence that has, not, that has been made. God created in and through Jesus. So these demons know they owe their very existence to Jesus. They know who Jesus is. They know that they're not in an equal playing field with them. Even Satan himself isn't Ying, to Jesus' yang. It, that, that's not how it is. Satan and his demons and his minions are always portrayed, especially in the Gospels, as pitiful, powerless, uh, you know, 12th class citizens in terms of, removed in terms of their power before Jesus. There's a real... Um, James, in in the, uh, the epistle of James, James is writing about kind of how demons understand Jesus. And he says, he's he's talking to Christians, and he says to people who are kind of like, well, I believe in God, but I don't want to be too extreme and live for Jesus. Like, I have my own beliefs, and I believe in God, but like, I just kind of want to live how I want to live. James says, oh, that's good that you believe in a God, because even demons believe that, but they shudder. They're not casual about it. They're not like, oh, yeah, I believe in a God, whatever. They don't shrug their shoulders. They understand who God is, and they shudder because they know at a point in the future they've been condemned to judgment in a lake of fire. Now, it's really, I think, the most fascinating turn in this whole text to me is verse 11, where it says, Whenever the impure spirit saw Jesus, he hasn't said anything yet. He's 50 yards out, he's turned a corner. They see him. It says, They fell down before him. Presumably, Inside the body of someone who is demon possessed, that person falls down. The Greek word that is used for they fall down is prospipto. And it actually means to collapse in front of someone in a sign of submission to their authority. So in Matthew 2, verse 11, when the wise men bring gifts and they bow down and worship Jesus, they're prospiptoing before Jesus it is a sign of this is someone whom is an authority over me and out of that authority, I will bow down and I will lower myself physically as a sign that this person is above me. Whatever this person wants to do or say over me is binding and I'm publicly giving recognition to that. So think about that. This is an instinctive response from the demons. They don't think about it. When they see him, they drop to the ground and they say, you are the son of God. They are utterly powerless before him. Whenever they see Jesus, they collapse to the ground in submission. It's like you know, if you're a, a you know, lakeside trail down by the park, you got the dog park, they yeah, dogs playing together. They play together long enough. One will try to assert its dominance. And what does the other dog do? Rolls on its back, exposes its belly as a way to say, you're the alpha in this relationship. I'm submitting to you. That's what I want you to picture in your head. That's the equivalent of what the demons are doing. They're not like, oh, I'm going to battle it out. I can take Jesus. There, there's, no, there's no doing battle with Jesus. Satan doesn't even try that. Satan's out in the wilderness with Jesus. It's just him and Jesus. If Satan's so so big, bad, powerful, why doesn't he he just kill Jesus? Because he can't. Because Jesus could have ended his existence with a word from his mouth. Jesus is allowing Satan to tempt him. He's allowing Satan to even exist. Like a dog submitting to its superior, these demons are saying, you are the Alpha Jesus. You are the Son of God. See, the Bible never depicts demons as equal with Jesus, and that's really, really important. Uh, listen to how Paul talks about it. In Colossians 2, Paul is contrasting what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he's accomplished on the cross, in contrast to the powers and principalities of darkness in this world. Verse 15 is in your, is in your notes. We'll get there. I'm going to read from verse 9. Paul says to the church in Colossae, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He's fully God and fully man. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh in the Bible doesn't literally mean our bodies as if our bodies are somehow inherently bad. Flesh means any pattern of living which is anti-God. When we're living the way God doesn't want us to live, we're living according to our flesh, the way that seems right to us. When you were dead in your sin and in these ungodly patterns, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And listen to what he says in verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The word that is used for disarmed, and it's talking about how Jesus disarmed the powers, is epicdiomy. And it means to disrobe or to strip or to undress someone publicly in order to cause shame. If someone were to come up right now, don't do it, this would be the worst illustration in the world, and just rip the clothes off my body, be memorable, but it would be the worst. That would be an instance of someone disarming me. It doesn't just mean someone has a gun and you're taking the, what we would think of as the armory out of the hands. It's stripping someone down so you see how pitiful and powerful, what an illusion that they were really anything. And Paul says, this is what Jesus did on the cross to the principalities and powers, not just in this world, but also in the spiritual realm. Think about how strange that is. I mean, this is a whole nother sermon. But wait a second. On the cross, Jesus was the one who was stripped naked. He was the one who was disarmed. He was nailed to a cross. He was made a spectacle. He was ridiculed. He was given the crown of, oh, king of the Jews. Put a purple robe on him. Let's beat him. Prophecy. Who struck you? Come on, magic man. Do, do Do your little thing for us. From a human point of view, the cross looks like Jesus is the one being disarmed. But in light of the resurrection and then Pentecost, Holy Spirit, Paul says, see, we all had it totally wrong. That's what we thought was happening. That's why we all scattered. But God used that. And what was actually happening is Jesus was stripping and laying bare all the powers of sin and darkness and death and saying, you think you've got it? Bring it on. He absorbs it all. And then God raises them, to, raises them from the dead, uh, conquering sin and death forever. Now the powers and principalities of darkness are nothing. They've been undressed for what they are and we see them naked and vulnerable and small and we're just like, oh, that's not that scary. Jesus is our king. I don't have to be scared of these things anymore. In light of the cross, Satan and his demons have been disarmed. They can tempt us within the limits set by God But functionally, they've been declawed, defanged, disrobed, and dismantled in terms of their ability to really derail our lives. As Christians, we see in the New Testament, as the mission of God moves forward, demons play interference. But they're never, even in the book of Acts, really, when there's a lot of other demon stuff that comes up, they kind of get dealt with pretty quickly. And a lot of it is by people like Peter and Paul, early apostles, who just kind of call them out on stuff and say, would you stop doing that? Get out of this person. Leave them alone. we got stuff to do. There's just not really a fascination with demons for the rest of the New Testament. When they show up, you confront them, move on. They've, they've been disarmed. They're just they're noisemakers more than anything now from, as a Christian. One of the fascinating things about this passage is that all the demons identify Jesus as the Son of God, and that's really important within Mark's Gospel because no human being identifies Jesus as the Son of God until really late in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. Does anyone know for bonus points who the person is that says Jesus is the Son of God? It, it's, not, <laughs> it's not Peter, not in Mark's Gospel. Peter says it earlier in Matthew's Gospel, but in Mark's Gospel, does anyone remember It's a centurion who sees Jesus being crucified. Um, Jim Skelton said it's John Wayne. And if you've watched the movie The Greatest Story Ever Told, that is that point where he sees Jesus died and he says, surely this man was the son of God. So there's a huge irony happening here in Mark. Early in Mark, God the Father affirms Jesus' sonship. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Early in Mark, we have all these demons saying, you're the son of God, you're the son of God. We know who you are. But all the people, including the disciples who are living with Jesus for years, they're like, well, we know he's a Messiah. Not exactly sure what that means. He's definitely a prophet. He has power. Who is this man, right? He does these miracles. Who is this man that he can command the wind and the waves? But the first human being to look at Jesus and say, oh, he's actually the son of God is a Gentile pagan. So we see this pattern in Mark that the spiritual realm knows who Jesus is. They recognize his authority, but We as humans are really slow to catch up. And that's where I want to move us towards as kind of we come to a close. How do you view Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? That's a question Jesus is actually going to put at the feet of his disciples in Mark chapter 8. It kind of becomes the hinge question of all of Mark's gospel. But it, it kind of moves, emerges right here. Demons are saying he's the son of God. There's been voices from heaven saying he's the son of God, not just a great prophet, not just a great teacher. What do you do with that? Are the demons mistaken? Is God the Father What do we do with that? The most common view by people who want to be respectable towards Jesus but also hold him at arm's length is this idea that Jesus was a great moral teacher, an amazing example, lived a life of love, served and gave in ways that were pretty much uncommon and, and, and led to a revolutionary new way of thinking about God maybe and, and what it means to be human and, and you know, love your neighbor and yourself, that, that kind of stuff. He stressed God's love and how we should love our neighbors as ourselves. But you kind of get very leery and antsy around talking about how Jesus was God. That just seems like a bit of an overreach, like he's a good person and... Um, So for most people in our society, I think that's where kind of people situate Jesus. Great person, I can learn from him. There's certain things in his teachings that I want to integrate into my life, but I'm not really big on the whole Jesus is like God worship him, like full on Christianity thing. I think that's weird and strange. C.S. Lewis was brilliant. He introduced an idea called the trilemma. Sorry, he didn't introduce it. He got it from uh, someone else. He had the most popular form of it, where he said, actually, you can't do that he called people out who said i'm going to embrace jesus as a great teacher but not as god cs lewis said you take the four gospels matthew mark luke and john you read through them study what jesus did what he said here's the conclusion you cannot come to he was a great person but either he didn't himself believe he was god or he didn't want anybody who followed him to think he was god that was that's been a miscommunication somewhere cs lewis says no there's only three conclusions you can come to jesus is either a liar He's just bold-faced lying about who he is and his claims to divinity and his claims to authority. He's a lunatic, so he's literally out of his mind. He thinks this about himself, but because he's had a cognitive break with reality. Or he is Lord. He actually is the person that he says he is and his life and his teachings and his witness overlap to form a cohesive witness to the fact that he is Lord. He writes this, I'm trying to prevent anybody from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or he's a madman or something even worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Liar, lunatic, Lord. C.S. Lewis's tri- trilemma. You've got to pick one of those. Now, very quickly, lately in pop culture, there's a fourth L, a fourth option that's been added. And that is, well, I don't believe Jesus is a liar or a lunatic or a Lord. I just think he was a legend. And this has been, you'll, you'll hear this, I, man, you'll, you'll hear this starting really soon as we move towards uh, Good Friday and Easter. And you're going to hear about it. I'm going to call it names just so you know. Uh, Reza Aslan, Bart Eiman, other New Testament scholars who will say, this is, it's not, that trilemma is false. It's just that later on, after Jesus, 100 years, maybe late second century, so 150 years after Jesus, these were just stories that got moved together and, and kind of fluffed up and it was one community's reinterpretation of what had happened and then it kind of gained steam. So this idea is that, well, Jesus probably existed as a person. Jesus of Nazareth did. But who he was and what he said, who can really know? We should just kind of sift through and take the good moral teaching stuff because this is obviously some kind of legend, a tale that grew in the telling, as Tolkien would say. Four reasons really quick come back to this sermon once when, when you start seeing these magazines and stuff cropping up in your Facebook feed and articles, four things to come back to why that's an absolutely untenable position. Number one, timing of the writing is way too early to be legends. People who study legends will say it takes centuries, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for there to be a critical mass of basic knowledge and uniform understanding of that knowledge in order for legends or myths to take place. The earliest gospel writings are 30 years, three decades after Jesus died and resurrected. Some of the cutting-edge scholarship in the gospel of Mark will make the argument. Mark's gospel might be written in the 40s. That's within two decades of Jesus dying and resurrecting. We have two, the the early records of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the extra-biblical writings that we have from the early church, church fathers, the writings are happening too fast for it to be legend we're already seeing by the 50s and 60s of the first century songs about Jesus being the Lord, songs about Jesus being the Son of God, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which is a Christ hymn, which was already established by the time Colossians was written, which was in the 60s, time of the writing too early to be legend. Number two, content is too counterproductive to be a legend. Think about it. If you're writing a legend later on, you're a group of 12 or whatever you're doing, saying, like, hey, we're gonna kind of, Jesus was awesome, but let's make him like Son of God awesome. We're going to write these. Art, we're going to write these documents. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—they all got together in a room, let's say, or they were influenced by each other. We're going to write this stuff. So much of the, so much that's in the gospels, doesn't—it's it, counterproductive to actually creating a legend. If you want to create a legend about someone, in general, and this is true of almost every ancient epic, you present that person as almost having no faults. And you present the people that are now representing him, the apostles, as pretty solid people. If you're making the step up as legends, why would you include the story where Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan? Peter's now alive, and he's like, I'm leader in the church. Where's your authority come from? Uh, Jesus once called me Satan, but then we had it like we made up, and it's all good now. Why would you... one writer said if Jesus ever called me out like that I wouldn't tweet it I wouldn't like let people know I'd be like that happened that was between me and Jesus that's where it needs to stay why would you have women discovering the empty tomb on resurrection Sunday women's legal women's testimony means nothing in the ancient context why would you have them discovering the empty tomb have Peter or James or John anybody Why, why would you show the disciples being cowards these are, the, I mean, these are the people later on who are retrofitting the whole story and saying, oh yeah, this is, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And, and we could go on forever with that point. Number three, literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be legends. This is what C.S. Lewis said. People were like, well, these are legends. C.S. Lewis is like, do you understand what ancient legends are? He was an expert in, in, in English literature. He said, I have been reading poems and romances and myths and legends all of my life. I know what they look like, and not one of them is like this, referring to any of the Gospels. Of these texts, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, people are having eyewitness accounts and they're writing it down, or some other writer in the second century, without any known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the rise of what's called novelistic, realistic uh, narrative, which is what we today would call fiction, we read a fiction book and it has lots of details. She grabbed her coffee. It was a mocha and this and that. And then she went on this street. People didn't write like that before. paper, again, you have, to, you have to pay for paper. You have to pay for ink or for papyrus. This is expensive. You, you don't add details. And you don't add strange details like Mark does where when the disciples scatter, some guy scatters and he's just completely naked. He runs away. You don't add details like that. You don't add details like that hey, people were coming from all over, Tyre, Sidon, Idumea. When you get details like that in scripture, those are first century footnotes that are there to say, if you don't believe me, you can still go down to some of these places. You can talk to these people. Hey, were you there when that naked man ran away? Yeah, remember that? This, these things actually really happened. They're not legendary in the sense of made up. And lastly, the message itself is too costly to be a legend. Blaise Pascal said, I believe witnesses who have had their throats cut. The message that Jesus is Lord, risen from the dead, that he was actually alive and he did these things and then God raised him from the dead, is something that if it wasn't true, we don't have any historical reason to understand the spirit of Christianity from the middle of the first century through till now. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you make up a story and make up a legend about how you're raised from the dead and now we've conquered sin and death and now the people who made up the story are going to tell it to other people and we're all going to go on mission telling other people at great cost to our lives? Peter was crucified upside down historically. That's not in the Bible. That's the historical record that we get from the early church. He was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be even... He didn't see himself as even worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. Crucify me upside down. But Peter was part of the, Peter and the early followers, another people who were killed, beheaded, destroyed, fed to lions, sawn into, Hebrews talks about it. Those people stuck to their guns for a legend. Like they just, it doesn't make any sense. You don't do that unless you serve a king who's conquered sin and death and has disrobed them and you look at those threats and you're like, okay, that's fine. If you kill me, I'll be with God. If I stay here, I still get to do God's will on earth. It's a win-win. I'm I'm fine with either. So what's your response to Jesus? Who do you say he is? And what's your response? Because C.S. Lewis says, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic or a fiend, and now I would add, or a myth of legend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and that he is God. And so this morning, I think the text presses us into one option only, that he is Lord. And if he's Lord, then the demons have the right of it. What we're supposed to do is collapse before him and acknowledge his kingship and bow our lives before him. So if you're a Christian today, let me ask you, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Are you prospito? Before him. Are you bowing the knee and saying, Your will be done? Or are you hoping that he'll bow the knee to you and say, You know what? Your will be done. I'm here to help you. I'm here, I'm here to help forward your agenda. I'm not your God, I'm your consultant, and I will help you, I will accelerate your goals. If you're not a believer here this morning, you have to understand you will live your life under the authority of some power. You will bow to someone or something. The Bible makes that very clear. You don't have a choice in that. If you bow down to Jesus, Jesus is the only king, he's the only master, he's the only Lord who's actually a savior and a deliverer who won't oppress you and demean you and rob you of life. He will lead you into it. And he will lead you into a new grace and new forgiveness and new life under his leadership. So may we be given eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, Lord, Master, King, and God. Let's pray. God, as we sing this final song to you, may our voices rise with praise. May we exalt you through this music, God, but may our hearts and our lives bow down before you. And not just here in this space as if that's all you want, but as we go out, as we break bread and fellowship together over lunch, as we go into our Sundays, as we move into this new week, God, may your spirit lead us and teach us what it means to have lives that, are, that bow before you and honor you in all things. And it's in the strong name of the Son of God, Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen.
1: Out of the ashes we rise
0: I'm going to say grace for the food downstairs so we can transition right away, and then I'll send us off in a benediction. God, we thank you for this food. As we break bread together, may you fill our hearts with a recognition of uh, the beauty of the church, of your gathered people. May our hearts continue to grow warm towards you and towards each other. As we share stories, as we uh, support the work um, that so many are doing in, in Rwanda, God, may you just multiply those gifts so that we can be a blessing to Christian brothers and sisters on the other side of the world uh, facing a darkness that, uh, frankly, we just uh, don't have to face. And maybe never will. Pray and ask for your blessing on this food. And we thank you for the hands that prepared it. Now, as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you be drawn to Jesus, but not simply for what he can give you, but for who he is in himself. And may you see Him for who He really is, which is Lord and Master and God. And may you respond by bowing down before Him and surrendering your life to His purposes. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.